Well, it's a delight uh, to be here this morning, and I said this at uh, the other services, but I I think it's worth repeating. Um, I hope you know just how remarkably fortunate you are to have such great music. As um, as we say back home, you know, these folks really kind of bring their A game. And uh, also, um, just the, even the, the folks back there working all the technology and stuff. Like at our church, we always say that organized religion is an oxymoron because our life is usually so wildly chaotic on, on uh, Sunday morning. But everyone here is like so organized and so delightfully cheerful and... <laughs> Can I get you some water or some coffee or an egg McMuffin? And what can I do for you? You know. So I'm. I just wanted to just alert you to just uh, how grateful you should be. And uh, gosh, just very, very impressed and, and moved by some of that music. Well, this morning I'm going to do something that's uh, known as the third rail in preaching. I'm, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to preach on a text that is so familiar to us that in some ways uh, I may find myself bumping into your having been spiritually inoculated to it because you've heard it so many times. I'm going to talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan today. And my greatest hope is that there is some insight uh, to be gleaned from this uh, narrative that will meet you in your place of greatest need this morning. That that somehow or another, uh, something would be said that would adhere to your soul and and, uh, encounter you in just the way that God wants you to be encountered today. I'm going to read the text and then directly following it without saying a word, I'm going to ask us just to be silent for a moment. Thomas Merton, who's one of my great heroes of the faith, once said that silence is God's first language. And I really believe that's true. And I also believe that's why so much of the culture militates against the possibility of our having any kind of spiritual depth because we are so robbed of silence. So as I read the text, just listen. Don't try to analyze it or hear it in the Greek, in the original language in your head. Uh, If a phrase or a word jumps up and shimmers, just look at it and wonder what God might be telling you. And then I'm just going to leave us some space afterwards uh, just to rest in what's been said. This is Luke chapter 10. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, What must I do to be saved? He said to him, What is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. 
Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Good and gracious God, this morning we come as people walking somewhere on a spectrum of great need. Some of us come this morning in search of hope, others in search of trying to understand where our lives are going, where they've been. Others of us are coming this morning confused, needing direction. Others are coming simply filled with joy at the beauty of the day outside and the great fortunes of their lives. But wherever we are this morning, I pray that by some work of your Spirit, something that is said would adhere to the souls of my new friends in such a way that they leave here more convinced than ever of your great love for them. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were to um, travel to the great cathedral, Chartres, in Europe, you would see on one of the stained glass windows depicted there the story of the Good Samaritan and juxtaposed right next to it the story of Adam and Eve and the fall of humankind. And you have to scratch your head when you see this and wonder what on earth was this medieval glassmaker thinking when he put these two narratives side by side. They, it seems very counterintuitive. One is a story that we think is really about our moral obligation to care for our wounded neighbor. And the other is about the 
the tragic intrusion of sin into the human condition. And we wonder, well, what, why would you put these two texts together? Well, my hope today is that we would leave here with an answer to that question. Why are these two stories? What was the internal logic? What was the method in the madness of this medieval glassmaker? Why does he put these two texts side by side? Well, let's begin by just considering the story. We're told that um, there is a traveler going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, I tell my folks at home this all the time. It is really difficult to understand anything in the Bible, is particularly in the, uh, uh, the New Testament, unless you have first century Jewish ears. It's very, very difficult to understand it. I mean, I, I hate to violate our cultural narcissism, but, I, but here's, here's a truth for you. The Bible was not actually written for you. You are reading someone else's mail when you read the Bible. It was written for first century Jews, right? This New Testament. And we inherit it down 2,000 years. And of course, by God's goodness and spirit, it does speak you know, to us. But it was not originally written for us. And so we need to don those ears to kind of really figure out what's going on in this text. So right away, these first century Jews would have heard Jesus say just those first words and they, they would have stood up. They would have picked up a very important nuance. Here's what it would be. Jerusalem was considered to be the heavenly city, the city of peace, the city of joy, the city where God's presence resided. While Jericho had a reputation for being sin central. So Jesus' listeners would have known that this traveler, this man, was going from Mayberry to Sodom. From Lake Wobegon to Las Vegas. Even the topography uh, in the story would have electrified or just alerted these first century Jews to another uh, dimension of the text that's important for us. The distance between Jericho and Jerusalem is about 20 miles. Jerusalem is 2,300 feet above sea level, and Jericho is 1,300 feet below sea level. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. In less than 20 miles, that road drops about, I guess, 3,600 feet. And so our story begins. There was a man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Are you catching the metaphor? It would have been very, very apparent to Jewish, uh, Jewish audiences. This is a Dante-esque story about one man's slide into sin. It's a story about a fall from grace into spiritual failure. And that is why that medieval glassmaker put these stories side by side. The story of Adam and Eve and the fall of humankind next to the story of the Good Samaritan. Do you see that? That's his logic. He was doing theology in art. He was doing very good theology in art. It's not like he ran out of a place to put the Good Samaritan and went, oh, we'll just jam it in here. You know, he was, you know, this guy's doing really, really good theology. 
Jesus' audience would also have known that the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notoriously dangerous. Nobody in their right mind would ever have traveled that road alone. You always traveled that road in a caravan or with a large group of people. It was windy, it was rocky, and it was loaded with robbers. Anyone hearing the story would have said, what a dope. What a complete dope. So this isn't just the story of a man who falls into sin. It's even harder edged than that. This is a story of a man who at the end of the day had no one but himself to blame for the plight he found himself in. Now, you know, it may sound like I don't have any empathy for this guy, but but really nothing could be further from the truth. I can completely relate to his story, and my hunch is so can you. How many times have I blithely, sometimes unconsciously, a lot of the times deliberately, walked down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho? How many times have I gone from 2,300 feet above spiritual sea level to 1,300 feet below it? Anybody with me? I drove uh, last night across the George Washington Bridge, which is a spiritual experience itself. (laughs) And what's really tragic is I'm going to have to pay on the way back, which is really insult to injury, really. But I know this. The condition of human beings between Connecticut and New Jersey is probably not altogether that different. When I crossed the bridge, I did not cross into another land where there are no beaten people on the roadside. I'm sure that even though I know none of your names, I know this about you. All of us in this room are suffering the consequences of some wrong choice we've made along the way. That choice may have been made 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago. It may have been made 15, 20, 25 minutes ago. But right now, there is a piece of us somewhere deep in the precincts of our souls where we feel beaten up on the side of the road. I know that's true. I oftentimes tell my children, and I know that this sounds rather draconian and severe. Draconian's a good word, isn't it? It's an excellent word. Dark, sinister. But I oftentimes tell my children that they're always one choice away from catastrophe. One choice away from disaster. And all of us know that deep in ourselves because we've suffered at the hands of that reality. We are beaten up on the roadside and like our unfortunate traveler, we feel robbed of so much. We feel robbed of our joy, of our peace, of our self-respect, of um, some relationship with someone we deeply cared about. We feel that our relationship with God has somehow or another been ruptured or bruised along the way as a result. And the voice of self-indictment, which normally for me comes at around 2.30 in the morning, speaks inside of our head telling us that we have no one to blame but ourselves. So we're told 
moving on, that our traveler is lying there and a priest comes along and won't stop to help him. In fact, he won't even approach him. Well, why? He's afraid the guy is dead. And for a priest to make physical contact with a dead man would render him ceremoniously unclean for seven days. And that would mean losing his opportunity, his turn of duty at the temple, which he was on his way to in Jerusalem. So in other words, he was setting religion above relationship. Observing the law meant more to him than this man's pain. Well, then another clergyman comes along. We're a good brunch, I suppose. He's a Levite. He's a temple assistant. And like the priest, he too is a member of the religious elite. Now, he's a slightly better guy. He kind of approaches the man gingerly, but then stops. Why? Because oftentimes, people would set up ambushes just like this one on the road. Hmm? He was afraid that out there in the bushes somewhere, this uh, beaten man's uh, co-conspirators were hiding and waiting to jump him when he came over to help. So here's a guy whose motto in life was safety first. He wasn't willing to take the risk on of helping someone else. Now, it would be really easy right now to do what we've normally done the 8,000 times we've heard this story told before, which is to sort of cluck self-righteously like this. Those bad clergymen. If they'd only been Christians like me, they'd have stopped and helped that poor soul. You know, I'm a therapist in in addition to being an Anglican priest, so I'm really dead in the story. But the... um, Years ago uh, in therapy, there was all this talk about the inner child. Do you all remember that? I see people nodding like this because you've had as much therapy as I have, which is, which is more than Woody Allen. Um, that's not the voice we should worry about in our lives. It's the voice of the inner Pharisee, the one that does go, I would have done it better. So let me say something that will soften your heart toward these two men who don't stop to help the beaten traveler. The problem here isn't that those guys don't save this beaten sinner on the roadside. The problem is they can't save him. Now let me say that again because it's a really important idea. The problem here is not that these two guys don't stop to help or save this beaten sinner on the roadside. The problem is they can't save him. Look, even though these three men present very, very differently, all three of them are in precisely the same spiritual mess. The beaten traveler is drowning in the consequences of his dissolute life, right? His debauched life. And the temple assistant and the priest are drowning in their legalistic religiosity and their own self-interest. 
they can't save this other guy because they themselves need saving. You know the rule, drowning, if you went to camp, you know the rule, right? Drowning people can't help drowning people. G.K. Chesterton, who's one of my great heroes, a long line of heroes of mine, I love what he said. He said, all human beings are in the same boat and we're all seasick. See, the irony here, though, is that the two men who can't save the traveler are the very kind of people you would think could. They're clergy. But Jesus is reminding us that the rule-based, pharisaical religion of the day didn't hold the solution to our deepest spiritual need. We need something else, and this is the great truth in the parable. This is why you got up this morning. Well, it would be a sad story if it ended there. It would be a real bummer. You'd all leave here depressed, which is what countless people around the country are doing as they leave church today. (laughs) But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, Again, first century Jewish years. Very hard to understand this text if you don't know what's going on right here. The fact of the matter is that this guy may not racially or ethnically have been a Samaritan at all. The term Samaritan in Jesus' time was often used to denote a person who was considered a religious outsider, someone who was a regular breaker of the ceremonial law, a troublemaker. So perhaps this This good man was a Samaritan in the sense of being one whom all the religious people despised for being someone who didn't keep the rules. Does that sound like anyone you know? Of course. It's Jesus. The good Samaritan is the icon of Jesus. Now what else do we know about Samaritans? They were Jews who had become half-breeds by intermarrying with Gentiles. And that is why the Jews despised them. Message. We need a half-breed. You and I need a half-breed. In fact, it is only a half-breed who can save us, we broken and bruised and bloodied travelers on the side of the road who have no one to blame but ourselves for the condition we find ourselves in much of the time. The only one who can save us is a half-breed. Someone who is strong enough yet humble enough to get into the quicksand with us yet have the capacity to pull us out because we can't save ourselves. Do you see that? In other words, we need someone who is both God and man. We need a half-breed. I love what the text tells us. It says that the good Samaritan goes to the inn and he pays two coins to put this man up and the innkeeper agrees to put the rest of the bill on this guy's account. So what do we learn about this Samaritan? He's got good credit. 
He is the only one who in the eyes of the Father has the spiritual coinage to ransom us, to buy us back, to pay the price for our condition. So what's the message? No one else can save us but him. Priests can't save us. Therapists can't save us. Self-help gurus can't help, help us along the way. Oprah can't save us. Our own virtues, our own desire to justify ourselves can't save us. None of it can save us. Only he, this half-breed, can save us. And you know what? That's so oftentimes an offense to our ears. See, because if you're anything like me, the little Pharisee inside you says this. You know, Jesus, you've done a pretty good job. And I appreciate everything you've done on my behalf. You've really got 99% of this deal covered. And thank goodness I have the other 1% in my possession so that I can create an auto-salvific event. Isn't that cool, that language? It just means so I can save myself. I can somehow or another contribute to my own salvation. That is spiritual toxicity. That way of thinking will kill us. And most of us, deep in our hearts somewhere, believe that we have something to contribute to our own salvation. And it takes a lot to disabuse us of that. But life is a very good instructor. We need to be beaten on the roadside until we figure out that this is true. We cannot save ourselves. You know, um, I work with people that are a lot like people here who've been very successful at what they do. And although we have fewer masters of the universe these days, there are still some about in the spiritual sense. I had a guy in a Bible study one time, a very successful investment banker, who used to get furious with me. He'd say, can you please just tell me how to do Christianity? Listen, friends. Christianity is not something you do. It's something that gets done to you. You bring nothing to the table. And that's really good news because some of us are exhausted from efforts at reformation, self-reform. Do you not understand that Christianity is not about reformation? That's the law. It's about transformation, which comes through an experience of being saved on the roadside by grace. Do you know, (laughs) Martin Lloyd-Jones, great British preacher, he used to have this great litmus test. He said, I know, how to figure, you know, I know how to figure out exactly whether or not a person is a Christian. And someone said to him, well, Dr. Jones, how do you know? He says, I asked them, are you a Christian? 
And if they respond by saying, well, I'm trying, then I know they're not a Christian yet. It's not about trying. To become a follower of Jesus, we make Christianity so hard because we just can't believe it's this simple, but it's this simple. In, in order to be a Christian, all you need is need. I mean, it's just that basic. All you need is need. All you need to do is lay along the roadside, beaten, bloodied, and bruised. And when the Good Samaritan comes, the person of Jesus, it is to relax into his arms of grace, to be taken to the inn of refuge and grace and given life again and healed and repaired. That's the gospel. It's that simple. You know, um, 26 years ago, I gave up drinking. Um, And for the first three or four years after I gave up drinking, I I went to AA. This is before I was a pastor, which I'm glad you're probably relieved to know. Um, But I remember thinking to myself when I started Trinity Church, that the best teacher I'd had after seminary, years of seminary, much better than seminary, was in those rooms. Because you see, none of those people had any illusions that they could save themselves. They had been disabused of the idea that they had in themselves the power to change. I learned more about church in those rooms than I ever learned anywhere else. And would that churches would be like a group of people beaten on the roadside who come together to laugh and to celebrate their complete and utter human brokenness saved by grace, a God who comes down the road upon his horse to take them home. So, I wish you all were drunks. So my question this morning, for you that are already followers, perhaps, or friends of God uh, on that journey, are you, um, are you in a place this morning where you continue to have this illusion that you bring something to the table of salvation? If so, you're probably a tortured soul today who's still trying to justify yourself. And you're exhausted, and you're depressed, and probably despairing of all your efforts And wondering to yourself, Jesus, do you like me yet? I'm trying really hard. You don't have to do that. All you need is need. And those of you who are playing and tinkering around with the idea of a friendship with God, I hope this morning what you hear is really good news. It's so simple. Just... Hold the need in your hand and say to the one who is waiting there at the roadside, who is moving towards you, just relax into those arms and give the great yes to him. And that is where the liminal moment happens, where we move into the space of grace and new life. Any other message is not good news. It's just about trying. 
That's not good news. Because if you're like me, you know that doesn't work. So the Bible, this story today is this great invitation to you. Let's pray together. Good and gracious God, um, what good news this morning to hear that all we need is need. And I pray for those here this morning in that place of need that they would be able to place themselves into your arms, into your care, into your sanctuary. And for those of us this morning who are already on the journey, I pray today that we would leave with hearts lightened of the load of reformation, of trying to save and reform ourselves, that we would just simply fall into your arms in a new way to allow ourselves to be healed and repaired. I pray in the good and peerless name of Jesus. Amen.